It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Hi, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. My name is Yehuda Kurtzer. I'm the president of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, and I'm joined today by two really special guests, friends, and wonderful religious leaders, Maggie Siddiqui. Maggie is the director of the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at Center for American Progress uh, and author of a recent CNN piece that I want us to talk about today, The Faithful Response to Coronavirus to Protect One Another. And the Reverend Laura Everett, executive director of Massachusetts Council of Churches and pastor in the United Church of Christ and author, a podcast host, a social media junkie like me. Uh, we're recording today on Tuesday, April 14th, 2020, and it's a particularly special time in the religious world to be recording this podcast. We just passed the first couple of days of Passover, and we're still in the middle of it. We are in Eastertide, the octave of Easter. I'm not sure what the right term is uh, uh, to refer to, but right having passed uh, Easter Sunday, we're on the eve of Ramadan. And I'm excited to talk to, to these friends and uh, religious leaders about what it means to be religious people right now, religious leaders, and possibilities for interfaith work uh, that are prompted by the world in which we're living and that create obligations for us that are different than the ones that we may have inherited to this point. So let me start just with the question that we all effectively are asking each other all the time these days. First of all, how are each of you? Uh, Maggie, I'll start with you first, and, and then Laura. Well, first, thanks for having me on. It's very exciting to to see you at any point in time and then to be able to be on the podcast in addition to that is really wonderful. I, I so appreciate that question. It means something entirely different these days, it seems. Um, but my, my family and I are, are doing well, staying quarantined, which it has its own kind of uh, challenges. The days all seem to blend together and that sort of thing. I think like many people, you know, we're um, struggling a bit with the uh, uncertainty of it all, learning news of loved ones who are becoming ill and, you know, uh, wrestling with those things as we as we come across them. Laura? I'm really happy to see you all uh, and grateful for Shalom Hartman, um, a place I hold um, with deep fondness as well. I'm in Boston. You know, we're in the city proper and there's an eerie quiet here. Uh, we can hear the trains. We can hear our neighbors' houses are close. Uh, we live in close proximity to our neighbors. Um, and so... You know, my family and I are doing okay. Uh, thank God we're all healthy. But, you know, it's, this season has a kind of intensity that I think we will not know the full consequences of for a very long time Yeah. Uh, on, on us individually, on us collectively, um, on our religious practices, on our psyches. Um, and so, you know, I think I'm holding up, but I also don't think I know the full consequences of what this is doing to me. Yeah, I think that's a fair read. And I, I also sometimes feel like I'm vacillating right now between 
trying to think in very present tense, wow, what's different right now? What is urgent? What's required of us? How do we pivot? How do we respond? And also my instinct, partly as a, as a historian, is to say, this is a moment in history and what's going to be dramatically different as a result of this? I watch it a little bit through, through the eyes of my kids who are not old enough to know that this is of massive historical significance. Like it's really a big deal in their lives, but they don't know that we don't really have pandemics every 10 years, right? Or, or something like this is as seismic um, as, as it feels. And, um, and I think some of the questions you just alluded to already, Laura, are so interesting of what are the theological, uh, political, existential consequences of all this. But let's start maybe just a little bit more locally. So you're coming off of probably one of the more unusual uh, Easter celebrations. So what did, what did it feel like? Uh, I could talk a little bit about Passover um, and the Seder. Well, we did a little bit of that last week. What did it feel like, and and what did what was community like in a moment like this? What was what did Holy Week feel like? I think that's the the term that I would want to use. Yeah, you know, my work at the Massachusetts Council of Churches is with eighteen different Protestant Orthodox denominations, which is to say, some of us uh, have had Holy Week, and others are in it right now. So the church is still divided. So I've had Easter, but my Orthodox Christian sisters and brothers are entering Holy Week now. So I'm mindful that uh, I've got two different Christian communities that some have experienced Easter, some are heading towards it. But for myself and for my own home, it was profoundly strange. You know, I think Christians generally have moved most of our ritual practice away from the home and towards the church, that our gathering, our our ritual practice happens corporately. And I have long operated with a sense of holy envy for Jews and Muslims with the home-based practices. This was not how I wanted to get there. Uh, Just by the, like for the record, when I uh, longed for more food, more uh, prayers at home, this was not what I was asking for. The Lord misinterpreted my plea, but uh, there was something profound that happened, right? Like we could not gather for Palm Sunday. Uh, We could not process around the neighborhood with our palm branches. And so, you know, my family, we cut down branches from our house plants. Uh, We took a walk with our face masks on around our neighborhood. Uh, You know, Maundy Thursday is when we remember that Jesus, uh, um, as a Jew, uh, consumed the Passover meal and then washed the feet of the disciples. And so we did that in our home. Usually that happens in a church. Uh, it, it, it's, it's been remarkable. All of these things that would have happened communally with a Christian community have been happening in our home in ways that, again, right, like as a historian, I don't think we know the consequence of yet that are beautiful and hard and painful. And, and we say as Christians, uh, we hear the words of Jesus say, Wherever two or three are gathered, lo, I am in the midst of them. We're really having to lean into that. Um, when Do we believe that when two or three are gathered over Zoom, uh, God is in the midst? Uh, I'm banking on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we're, we're stretching uh, what, how we think the Holy Spirit operates right now. You know, Easter is the day when we say love is stronger than death and that God died and rose, which is a audacious theological claim that God was so invested in human suffering to die and rise um, so that we might not experience death alone. 
And as terrified as I am of being in my own home right now, there is something profoundly comforting for me in that. Yeah. One of the things I talked about last week is Passover for Jews is is actually unique among biblical holidays where the primary sacrificial activity is a home-based ritual as opposed to a temple or, or, a, or a mishkan, a, a tabernacle-based sacrifice. So it's actually baked into Passover, uh, no pun intended, that Passover is supposed to be a home uh, ritual. The only difference is that for many of us, that home ritual this year uh, was only with immediate family or in many cases, people alone, as opposed to extended family and extended community. And even so, even as a home-based ritual, synagogue plays a big part of showing up on Passover morning and, and all of that is missing. But I, I do want to come back to a little bit later, the question of what happens when church becomes at home, because I think that's one of the big shifts for us. Um, but Maggie, um, let me turn over to you. So we're a little bit on a different time timeline as it relates to the Muslim world, so to speak. Uh, we've debated the, the utility of that term. Can you, can you help us anticipate um, how you and how uh, Muslim communities are, are thinking about and preparing for holidays that are also about unifying in large groups? Uh, those pictures have gone viral of, uh, of the Kaaba in Mecca with nobody around it. Um, what that's going to look like and feel like, and, and certainly the celebrations that involve uh, uh, large gatherings and, and, and extended families together. How are you thinking about that and, and um, help us uh, help us see into the world of, uh, of contemporary Islam? I mean, it's, it's incredibly challenging to think about because, as you said, Ramadan is such an intense time of community that for a lot of Muslims who don't normally come out to really anything during AR, the year, Ramadan is the time to sort of reconnect with people. If you're in a new city, to experience the community in that city for the first time. It's a social time. It's also a time of intense solidarity because fasting is hard. <laughs> and it's made much, much more uh, easy when you have people to break your fast with. People gather in prayer together at nighttime, listen to the beautiful recitation and pray uh, following that recitation in ways that just simply can't be replicated online. And so that's, I think, incredibly painful for uh, a lot of Muslims to anticipate. There are flip sides to that in that, um, you know, one of the sort of lamentations of a lot of Muslim scholars is that, ah, you've made Ramadan such a social time, right? Like you've taken all of the spirituality out of it. And now it's, it's as if like all that's left is this spirituality, of course, only the, the solitary kind in that sense. But Ramadan is also supposed to be a time in which in addition to all of those communal activities, you are worshiping alone at home, praying to God when no one can see you in the middle of the night. And so there may be some increased opportunities for that as well. As a Muslim convert, I have had Ramadans alone before. I've celebrated Eid alone before. And so my heart really goes out to those people who are alone in their households or who are the only Muslims in their, in their households, where even their household in and of itself is not going to provide that community for them in that sense. Um, I do remember that my Ramadans alone are probably the times of greatest discipline <laughs> that I had as well in that practice. And, and just one more fascinating thing that I think we're uncovering as well is for a lot of families, the mothers are often the ones that end up staying home with the children while the men engage in congregational worship, whether that's Friday prayers or, you know, prayers at the mosque during Ramadan. And so a lot of men are experiencing that kind of 
denial of that opportunity for the first time. And there is this, there's this really fascinating sort of gender equalizing experience, I think, that's also happening uh, within our community. Or even, I should say, even the fact that usually Muslim men, right, will, will lead the sermons for Friday prayers. But online, it's not considered a legitimate sermon. It's just a talk. And so that kind of opened up the question of, well, if it's just a talk, then a woman, you know, a woman could do it. There's nothing ritualistically problematic there. So there are some really like fascinating ways in which this is like very difficult, but also forcing us to think about our spiritual practice, our community dynamics, like all of that in new ways. Yeah, that, that last piece is especially poignant. And, and you've introduced basically kind of a three-part dichotomy here building on Laura's, which is like the religious experience of the individual, the, the religious ex- experience of the domestic unit and how that, how that is different. And what we alluded to before of the religious experience of being in broader community, whether it's synagogue, mosque, uh, or church. I'm reminded in your story, Maggie, of um, a friend of mine recently, a couple of weeks ago, who doesn't pray in egalitarian synagogues, said something to the effect of, you know, for the first time in my life, we're sitting around in our house him and his wife and his children, sons and daughters, and praying together. And he was like, this is really interesting. And, you know, it's not, it's not likely going to stick, right? The, the pivot to actually um, leave, when you actually leave home and go into, uh, back into synagogue to re-enter into gender segregated spaces is most likely going to be what he does. But I was fascinated just phenomenologically by how do we evolve religiously uh, based on this experience. Can you just say another sentence about, you alluded to the, the solo Ramadan experience, because it's been a big conversation in the Jewish community, the solo Seder, and uh, and what one of the one of the crude differences is that a huge percentage of American Jews participate in Passover seders, but it's not a re- it's actually genuinely not a religious experience. It's a piece of what it, of of kind of American Jewish cultural attachments, and you can't miss a seder. And it's hard for folks in with that kind of orientation to do a solo seder because the whole cultural piece is to be with other people, right? Um, it, it, if, if it's a religious experience, you can figure out a way to lean into the private introspective religious experience. But if it is predominantly a social and cultural activity, then um, it's really hard to motivate what it means to be alone in your apartment singing a set of songs that nobody can harmonize with you about. So tell us a little bit about you kind of indicated that the solo Ramadan experience was religiously meaningful for you and that I would love for us and for our listeners and, and to create some sort of interfaith learning around that. So in some ways, fasting is the most uh, private form of worship insofar as no one knows that if you are doing it, <laughs> you know, you can claim you're fasting and then go eat and drink behind closed doors and no one but God would know. And so in some ways, that is a very spiritually intimate practice. It's the breaking of the fast that is very social. And that makes that private activity um, feel a little less like you don't feel alone in that. It makes it solitary, but not alone. I think why it was disciplined was more a sense of routine. That's similar to quarantine. I, I just, you know, I went to work, I came home, I ate I went to sleep to make sure that I could do it all the right way the next day. I don't recall having any kind of like spiritual epiphanies like in this process, but I think there was something about the routine and the structure 
that sort of helps with that rhythm of and being able to engage in fasting over and over throughout a month. And quarantine in many ways provides that same sort of routine and, and, and regular experience. And, and I could see fasting potentially providing a greater rhythm so that the days don't simply blend from one to another. I remember having, a, even in my eating, there was a sense of discipline because there was this time that wasn't filled with social activities. I could say, this is what I need to eat to be able to get to get through tomorrow's day of work and to be able to, um, you know, to nurture myself. I was just a lot more conscientious about like what I was putting in my body, which should also be, I think, an experience of fasting. What are we not putting in our bodies and why? What are we putting in our bodies and why on the other side? Um, whereas when you're going to social iftars, you're eating whatever is there. You're eating probably a lot of it too much. Of it, yeah. <laughs> you get too sleepy to pray <laughs> um, or pray as long as you'd like to. And, you know, uh, so yeah, th- that, that can be really helpful in that sense. But uh, as Laura said, right, we'd rather not be forced to experience these things in this way. Yeah. I'm taken by the losses and the gains, right. Of what we miss. And for me, I don't know about prayer. Um, I have my own ambivalences about prayer, but I, I certainly miss showing up at shul, um, showing up at synagogue, uh, and even showing up late, you know, and just being there just for Kiddush, which is the, we'll get to drink a cup of coffee and see people afterwards. But it actually, the act of walking, the act of going is even in rabbinic tradition described as being meritorious in its own right. So whether or not you actually pray when you get to shul, there is this category called schar halicha, the reward you get for walking there. Those things, it's hard to kind of parse where they where they begin and where they end. Laura, you know, I'm taken by one of the things that I love about your writing, especially online, is when you refer to your community as church. And um, <laughs> you're right, that's your, that's your vocative yeah. phrase, right? Church, yeah. this is what yeah. we're doing. Um, what is that about? Because that means that church is not a destination. Church is a, a community of people. And I, I'm curious for how that, how that influences how you're thinking about what it means to minister a flock right now. Um, we're still a church in spite of the fact that they are not at church, that they're not in one place. Like, what, is that, what does that look like? How are those interactions that are not just broadcasting here, I'm giving you stuff to think about, but are, are really ministerial? Um, how has that now been conducted? How does that religious life manifest? Yeah, uh... I often uh, refer to my people as church and that's absolutely intentional. That's who I want us to be. You know, Christians, when we disagree with one another, we divide, we make different denominations, we make different orders. We make Franciscans and Dominicans and Benedictines. Uh, We make different kinds of Protestants. I mean, we just, we divide and Jesus praise in John 17 that we might all be one, not just for our own sake, right? The rest of the verse is that we might all be one so that the world may believe in the one who sent me, right? So this mandate to be one is for a witness to the world. Because how can you proclaim a reconciling God if you're fighting with one another? It it compromises our witness. Um, And so when I speak to church, I'm trying to speak us into a unity that we don't yet have. And for me, that is a core theological conviction about the parts of the church that don't much like me, that I don't much like either. (laughs) Um, It's it's trying to remind myself about the parts of the body of Christ that I would rather not be in community with. But, But in this pandemic moment, right? Like that's the bigger theological frame. But in this moment, 
to call us church, to call us kin in the body of Christ, to speak to all who are baptized, whether, whether I like them or not, um, is saying who I think my congregation is. And that's the body dispersed. Christians can get hung up on our buildings. And like, I, I think there's something profound about the faithful in every generation who have said, you know, we are going to build tabernacles, build spaces, build, build cathedrals and, and simple uh, Quaker meeting houses as places where we can worship God and, and the Holy Spirit can dwell and we can pray. Um, but we also say that the church is not a building, right? Um, uh, Christians I've been noticing lately have been saying the church is not closed, it's dispersed. The church building is not closed, it's spread out, right? But buildings matter. Um, and especially I've been noticing for historically African-American communities, for immigrant Christian communities, the pride that communities have taken in church buildings that have been built after genocides, after forced migrations, after slavery, to build a building and say, this is our space, has been so profound. And so to shut those down, especially, look, think about the experience Black Christians have in the U.S. Um, to close down a Black church, Black church has been a space of education, a hospital, um, a banking system, a credit union, because banks wouldn't serve Black folks in the U.S. And so to close a Black church in this moment is not just to close a space of spiritual refuge, it's to close a multi-service center. Um, and so there's a massive and profound loss um, for communities. And so even as I'm sort of waxing poetic about a church dispersed, there is there is enormous practical, spiritual, um, pragmatic, economic loss for so many communities. And I don't want to lose that um, as I'm, I'm noticing also what is, what is profound about this moment too. The metaphor can be exciting, but it doesn't mean that a, that a shift into a metaphor can't be totally debilitating. And there too, I mean, one of my favorite Jewish ideas is that our record of a synagogue long precedes our record, our historical record of fixed prayer which means we know Jews were gathering together in a place that's called literally gathering house. That's what synagogue means um, before we have a record of prayer. So it doesn't, it's not a building that is created for the purpose of necessarily a religious ritual. It's a building created for the purpose of community. And then there becomes a question, this is a crude rendering of the history, but it becomes a question of what do you actually do once you're in one place? So the, the, that's a little bit of the push and pull that we have here of these spaces as places of gathering, because that's a fundamental anthropological human need and, and religion as the vehicles that organize us versus these activities. I want us to talk a little bit about what then, what's the role then of religion right now? Because if we don't have the gathering spaces, right? And, and we can't, as you said, Laura, like these synagogues, churches, mosques serve unbelievable social, political, communal organizing mechanisms. Um, and if I can, I'll just, I just, I was hoping to find this text and hopefully I'll dig it up, but I don't have my books, but um, there's a great text from Bonhoeffer, uh, who I go back to and read a lot, uh, where Bonhoeffer argues so passionately for how do we locate the church in the center of community as opposed to on the margins? How does it become the organizing principle of our, of our communities and our lives as opposed to the instinct to relegate in his case, Christ to the margins. In my case, it would be God or Judaism to the margins. And um, and so when that happens, when this is what we are, 
I'm curious to hear from both of you, what do we think religion is supposed to do right now? Um, And that can mean either from the prism of our own particular faiths, but also collaboratively, because you could imagine, right, you could imagine that, Maggie, to your argument um, in the CNN piece, if religious leaders right now should be encouraging people to stay home, right, and not go to church, that is probably the right thing to do from a, on a human level. It probably has a religious mandate to it, but it's in some ways like a long-term loser for the business of building communities that depend on showing up. So what is it, what do we want out of religion right now when, when church, contrary to Bonhoeffer, moves from being the center to actually being the margins? Well, for me, I, I feel like there's a, um, there's a lesson on community in this and there's a lesson on spirituality in this and I think in terms of community what's been really fascinating is like yes we're not gathering in person at the same places we're used to gathering but there's a sense of like who is in my community for me has expanded like I'm able to tune into the to the Friday sermon of imams that I love that I'm nowhere near (laughs) right? Like that live in other cities. I'm checking in on um, friends and community members who I haven't seen in a very long time because we're not, you know, geographically proximate, right? But there's a sense for me mentally of just like who is in my community and like who I am responsible to and accountable to has shifted from the ways that I thought of it before during this pandemic, which is really fascinating. I think just in terms of that, like, like who is who is church. And of course, you know, this is also a time when we would benefit most from gathering in person and, 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 you know, mourning in person and grieving in person. And like, we don't have those usual ways, but I guess what's also kind of the, this is both a community thing and a spiritual thing. Like one of my uh, dear mentors, you know, recently announced that he was dying. And as you can imagine, it's, it's it's incredibly difficult, uh, not only for me, but for a number of us. And we gathered online in a, you know, Zoom webinar to pray for him. And, you know, we also have traditions that, you know, the, the, the angels are present, you know, when two or more are gathered. And I had been questioning even for myself to what extent I would feel that presence engaged in, a, in an online prayer or even an online study group or, or what have you, to what extent would I feel that the angels were present. And at the end of this prayer, my mentor who we were all praying for joined and said that he felt some of the pain lifting away from him during that prayer. And it was, I think, this incredibly powerful reminder of the transcendence of God, that that we are not somehow by by virtue of being together, that we are somehow manufacturing the presence of God. Like God is 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 has a, a, an existence that transcends the physical barriers that we now have. And that it was in many ways ridiculous for me to, to question to what extent we would feel the power of prayer in our separate spaces when God is not bound by time or space, according to our theology. Um, so it's, it's, I think, an incredibly powerful lesson in that. And, and a, power, a powerful lesson also in just this notion of uncertainty there was a Sarah Sultan, a Muslim therapist I was listening to was saying uncertainty is a fact of life. And we go about every day, assuming that we have the next day or that we know what the next day will look like, but these are all uncertainty is just, is actually a fact of life. And we're just, it's coming to the fore for us. So I think there's an incredibly powerful spiritual lesson in that and that we are finding ways to, 
to navigate that as a community that, um, you know, through these Zoom webinars and all of that, that don't require that physical, um, you know, close connection within a building. Like that, that to me is just like, this is, this is elevating. In fact, I think what religious communities, like what their function is, what that, what spiritual gathering really means. Um, we're seeing it in whole new ways. Yeah. I, um, I think it's a great question. What, what do we think religion is being asked to do right now? Um, I wrote a op-ed for religion news service about an honest Easter. Um, this feels like the most honest Easter of my life. There's everything's been stripped away. There's, there's no dress up. There's, you know, no brass trumpets, no harps, uh, no Easter bonnets. This was as stripped down as decommercialized as possible. Um, I mean, for Christians, you know, the central image of our faith is an implement of Roman torture, right? Like it's a, it's a pretty ridiculous claim. Like if you're going to build a religion, that's not the image you would want to choose. Um, and, and so the thing that is like stunning to me this year with Easter and Holy Week, and I feel like every essay I've written, every sermon I've preached, I keep asking myself, like, is this too grim? Do I need to back up um, from how much I'm talking about death and about fear and about anxiety? But what I hope for religion right now is that we are unflinchingly honest. Um, because I, I think we're seeing the limits of self-help. I think we're seeing the limits of the feel-good um, self-help uh, commercialized industry, because honestly, if by self-help I could have saved myself, I would have done it um, long ago. But, but what I know that I need is something bigger and greater than myself. I cannot resurrect myself. I cannot save myself. I need something much bigger and greater than me. I cannot forgive my own sins. I cannot redeem myself. And so a story that is well-worn uh, and, and prayed over by generations is holding me fast um, because I've never been through a plague before, but the church has. Jews have, Muslims have. Um, and so these prayers that have been well-worn by folks in every generation whose names I will never know are the kinds of things that are holding me fast. And so for me, as a, as a Christian, um, to reclaim some of the terror of Holy Week is actually a place where I am finding comfort, to remember that those first disciples hid because they were terrified. They, they hid in their rooms because their mourning rituals were disrupted. And that God... Um, was so committed to humanity to go all the way to the grave. And so anyone who dies at this moment, anyone who dies um, in the experience of, of COVID-19 uh, restrictions in my theology does not die alone. That's the promise for me of Easter. Wow. I think the crude way that I'm worried and thinking about, it, and I think both of you have given us some language is, you know, this terrible distinction we have in our society between essential industries and non-essential industries and the resistance in so many parts of this country to the classification of religion as a non-essential industry. And we do that because we need people to stay home. Um, but you get what the resistance is. Are you telling me that this thing, these activities were social or, or cultural alone, so to speak, as opposed to 
this is what I most fundamentally need. A few weeks ago, my colleague Rivka Schwartz was here in discussion with us, and she said, it's not when you see ultra-Orthodox Jews resisting the directives to stay home. Um, it's not because, it's not out of a hatred of science, and it's not necessarily out of a hatred of government or a skepticism of government, but it's out of a deep belief that the two technologies we have at our disposal to actually fight moment, in moments like this are prayer to God and study of the Torah. And, um, and I think that's where I feel like we're on the razor's edge as people of faith uh, and as people of interfaith, of the need to articulate simultaneously why it's religiously significant for us to be alone and to make the argument as profoundly as we can that the work of faith in all of its sincerity and the work of interfaith is, is actually um, an essential industry. Let me, let's conclude with this. Um, I'll put you both on the spot. A number of years ago, I, I had experience studying at Catholic university and um, it was a powerful experience for a whole year. And it was a powerful experience in all sorts of ways and I had great stories. But one of the, at one point I found myself in a class that was actually more of a, it was a class on marriage and family in the early church, but it turns out it was actually kind of a training course for, for young Catholic activists. And um, I decided to stay. because so I was like, this is going to be a really amazing experience. And one of the things that in that class that happened was they started every class with a prayer. I didn't know what was happening when it happened. I was like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> um, and then to the credit of my professor, who I'll never forget, three or four sessions in, I was clearly not Catholic. Um, uh, three or four sessions in, she pulled me aside and said, we really would love for you to lead the prayer. I spent a long time thinking, am I comfortable doing that? Can I, what would I, what would Jews say? But I, I would love to invite both of you, if you're comfortable giving us a prayer, um, sharing some words of prayer that might help us, our listeners, be they Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. What, what are you, uh, maybe offer some words of prayer for us to hold uh, a space together this strange ecumenical podcast space together at this really holy moment for, for all of our traditions. Um, um, sure. I think I would um, ask that God provide tranquility to our hearts. I think right now in the uncertainties and the traumas and the grieving and all of the anxieties that we have, um, that he provide us with this, that, that God provide us with this calm, this sense of, being able to be in the moment, to be present, to find sort of the greater picture in all of this, to reprioritize in this moment of forced reprioritization, to be able to see what is transcendent and what is not, and what is worthy of our attention, what is not, and to hold on to that hope that we will come out on the other side of this, that the, the uh, not to sound corny, but that the sun will shine again, so to speak. Thank you. Laura? Will you join with me in a moment of prayer? Holy One, in every generation, your people have called upon you, and we call upon you by many different names. Gracious God, this is an apocalyptic moment. There is an unveiling. There is a reckoning. And we ask that you make clear to us what needs to be seen. God, if there are scales that need to fall from our eyes, let them go. Help us to see what is being revealed. God, we confess to you the great injustices that have been perpetuated in this country that leave so many unsafe, so many without the care and comforts they need to weather this storm. And oh God, we are scared. We are fearful and much is being revealed. 
Help us to keep our eyes focused, to keep our hearts breaking. Help us to know what is our work to do. Help us to have patience, to persevere, to endure what cannot be avoided. Give us strength and courage for the living of these days. Holy and gracious one, you have led your people in every generation, and for this we give thanks. Steady us for the living of these days. Reveal to us what needs to be revealed. We know you by many names. I give thanks that I know you as the resurrected one, the great physician, Jesus the Christ. Alleluia. Amen. I'll add just the short prayer that Moses offers, um, the story, prayer of healing in the Bible, a piece of biblical poetry that is just esoteric in its brief wisdom, where Moses simply says to God and upon Miriam's uh, affliction, El na rifan please God, heal her. And it somehow works. Thank you for listening to this week's show. And special thanks to our to my friends and to people I learn from all the time, Maggie Siddiqui and Reverend Laura Everett. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music courtesy of So-Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere else podcasts are available. We will be back on our regular Thursday release schedule next week after the Passover holiday. In the meantime, Chag Sameach, Blessed Easter, Ramadan Mubarak. We'll see you next week, and thank you for listening.